внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. The atmosphere in the run-up to Russia's so-called elections this weekend is so restrictive that for the first time since the breakup of the Soviet Union, the OSCE has decided not to send observers. The main Russian election observer Golis has been declared a foreign agent. Opposition candidates, many facing arrest and imprisonment, are fleeing the country. Websites are being blocked, and Western tech companies like Google and Apple are being pressured to remove political content and apps the Kremlin doesn't like. When it comes to the upcoming state Duma elections, there is no doubt that the fix is in. The Kremlin has the tools and the will to manufacture the result it wants. But Russian elections are less about the results, which are largely preordained, and more about the ritual and the theater. And what is not clear is whether Vladimir Putin's regime will be able to control the election's narrative this time. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome back, Kostya. It's always great to see you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for staying up so late. I know it's a lot later there than it is here. So, so Kostya, it's, it's basically just you and me this week, and I thought we'd keep it casual. Just two old friends chatting in a bar about the Russian elections, as one does. Um, and I, I've long ago stopped thinking about Russian elections as elections per se. In fact, I don't even like calling them elections because that insults the integrity of actual real elections um uh, but but what what so-called elections russian elections are in fact are legitimization rituals and political kabuki theater the kremlin needs to put on a good show the regime needs to demonstrate that it can mobilize the population get a good turnout and a strong showing for the ruling united russia party without the appearance and the operative word here is appearance that they had to resort to crude falsification to do so. In short, it needs to control the narrative about the election, the story about the election. And the opposition, for its part, always seeks to disrupt that narrative and construct its own narrative. And this weekend's elections basically pit two countervailing trends against each other. On one hand, the ruling United Russia party is historically unpopular, and on the other hand, The regime is engaged in an all-out campaign of repression that aims to stifle any attempt to challenge its dominant narrative. So that's that's my kind of frame going into the election. Kostya, I was wondering, how do you see it? Um, how, how do you view this so-called election? What are you looking for? Uh, how, how do you view this? Uh, frankly, Brian, I'm not looking for much. Uh, you rightly described it as the so-called election. That's exactly how I describe it, too. You can also say that it's a process of voting or plebiscite, uh, but it's voting without choosing, let's put it like that. And also, I would actually not like us to call United Russia a ruling party. That presumes that it's something like, I don't know, the Democratic Party in the United States or the Conservative Party in the UK, which, you know, form governments and appoint officials. Uh, it's not a party, just like all other so-called parties, the Communists or Zhirinovsky, uh, Zhirinovsky's Liberal Democrats, uh, who are neither liberal. Or neither liberal nor Democrats. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or, or and the Communists aren't Communists either. The Communists <laughs> are and the Just Russia, which is headed by someone who is probably the closest Uh, Russia has to a uh, public neo-Nazi, uh, uh, Mr. Prilepin, uh, is not just, it's not about justice. But I think that uh, all of that is important for Putin and for, the, for Russia's regime, because uh, it is, as you rightly said, an acclamation of the regime. It is going through the motions of approval for the 
for the electorate. But it is also a part of a wider picture. These are not elections, or this is not a vote that is important per se. Uh, it is part of the preparation process for 2024, mm -hmm. yeah. when Putin's term rounds out. And when he is to decide uh, whether he stays on, which he can, or whether he leaves and uh, and and makes a swamp, uh, or whether he leaves and makes a swap with, with, with some kind of successor, or, or, or whatever, or becomes a monk and goes to... I, I, I'm expecting him to pray. I, I assume you uh, are I, too. Yeah, yeah, well, everyone does, but we know that he likes surprises. Uh, but I think that this legislature is important because it's going to be sitting, it's going to be in place for for, for the changes, whether, whether Putin requires them or not, it's another story, uh, which may be needed by the Kremlin uh, by the time 2024 comes. And in this respect, this is part of, uh, of the 2024 preparation. Mm -hmm. uh, and because of that, Putin wants a totally loyal Duma, and uh, he at the same time wants a Duma that will look respectable, that will look respectable without, of course, letting in uh, people that are affiliated with Alexei Navalny or even with the more or less uh, pliant uh, democratic uh, party called Yabloko of Grigory Yavlinsky. So I think this is the story. And I think only when you look at it from the point of view, from the vantage point, from the perspective of 2024, uh, this so-called election becomes more or less... Uh, more or less uh, understandable for an outsider. Yeah, I mean, I and I want to dive into the 2024 question in the second half after uh, um, below the fold today. But what I want to talk about now is this this attempt to control the narrative. Because yes, I agree with you. There is no doubt that they can manufacture the result they want. But this can be done with varying degrees of success. Um, and the two elections I like to contrast. By the, in, in this way of looking at these elections as rituals, as legitimization rituals, and as theater, um, is the contrast between 2007 and 2011. Um, remember back in 2007, the atmosphere there, Putin was completing his second term in the Kremlin. They were about to do this, uh, this uh, wasn't called the castling yet, but kind of transfer power to, to, to Medvedev temporarily. Putin was going to become the prime minister, and they needed to put on a good show in those, 2000, those December 2007 Duma elections. Um, you remember the spectacle of that time, these rallies of uh, in Tver and other cities proclaiming Putin the national leader um, as he was supposedly leaving power. He was going to become some kind of Russian Ayatollah was the, was, the, was the vibe we kind of had at the time. And those elections did go off. I mean, from the Kremlin's perspective of a legitimization ritual, of course, they were falsified. Um, of course, there was ma manipulation and ballot stuffing, um, but they went off without a hitch. Um, they, they managed to secure this uh, constitutional majority in the Duma for, for United Russia. Um, only the kind of Kremlin-backed uh, so-called opposition parties like Just Russia, the Communists, and LDPR got into the Duma. Um, and the, the, the whole thing was probably a success from the point of view of political theater and ritual. Fast forward four years. Medvedev's term is ending, and it's, it was already announced that Putin was returning to the Kremlin. Many inside the elite were unhappy with that, as well as with the society. Um, and those elections, because you had a very changed Russia at that time, remember the videos of the carousel voting and the ballot stuffing that we were all watching in, in real time. Um, so they managed to secure a bare bones majority for United Russia. They are only able to do it with massive and obvious stuffing of the, of the ballots and carousel voting and the massive use of administrative resources. Um, so that election was a failure from the point of view of ritual and theater for the, for the Kremlin. And it was followed, of course, by the largest demonstrations we had seen to that time, up to that time in the former Soviet, in, in Russia since the Soviet Union broke up, the, the so-called Bolotna protest named for the square in central Moscow where they took place. Um, and I'm wondering how you see this one playing out, because certainly United Russia is historically unpopular, right? It's, it's, it's they're, they're polling between 27 and 29 percent nationwide. The last polls I saw, the last credible polls I saw, just 15 percent in Moscow. Um, so if this were a normal election, they'd be toast. 
Uh, but this, of course, is not a normal election. But the Kremlin seems to be pulling out all the stops to prevent the a repeat of 2011. Um, 2011 was when Navalny kind of pioneered this tactic of smart voting. Remember, he encouraged his supporters to vote for anybody but United Russia, even if it's the communists, just to embarrass United Russia. You had people using their cell phone cameras, recording all the violations. The Kremlin seems to be cracking down on all of these things right now. There's not going to be video feeds in the polling places anymore. Golis, the main election observer, has been declared a foreign agent, so its activities will be restricted. The OSC is not sending observers. So how do you see this playing out in this atmosphere? Can we expect 2007 or 2011? We can expect neither. Uh -huh. uh, in 2007, there was a different mood in the country. Uh, Putin was genuinely popular. Uh, he was uh, basically presiding over an economy that was growing. It was kind of, to some extent, false growth. But when the barrel of oil stood at $100 nearly, uh, everything seemed to be possible. So it wasn't that important whether it was Putin or Medvedev. Or, or, or 2007 was a different era before the crash of uh, yeah. 2008. Eight. Yeah. Now, 2011 was also different because it happened during Medvedev's presidency. It happened basically not so much because of the Duma elections, but because that was the first, uh, uh, the first instance or the first chance for the society to show its displeasure with Putin's return, or at that time planned return to the Kremlin. And uh, this was an anti-Putin protest, which was wrapped in a protest about the Duma elections. But it was uh, the, the blatant uh, falsification, which was the catalyst for yes, that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so now we have a different situation. Putin is, well, still has his base, but it, he's definitely his popularity is not comparable to that of 2007 and to that of 2011. Uh, he is older. Uh, his team is also older. Uh, the country is under sanctions for different types of things, including Crimea, Ukraine, and so on. Uh, it's clear also that 2024 for Putin is an important benchmark. So. Everyone who serves him, the presidential administration, the Siloviki, the, the, uh, the electoral commissions, they are all afraid to make a false step, to make a misstep, because mm -hmm. it's not the election as such. It's not the numbers that are important because of their importance uh, 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 as, as, as uh, you know, parliamentary elections. Uh, uh, it is important because of 2024. No one wants to irritate Putin because of that. And I think that... Uh, some kind of point of no return has already been left behind in terms of falsifications, in terms of denial of access to observers, in terms of this kind of uh, uh, video links which are going to be, uh, which are going to be basically uh, cut uh, to, to, to video observation. Uh, also, the voting will stretch for three days and, and will also happen electronically, which means that falsifications will be probably massive. Um, so in this respect, yes, of course, there is a bit of a competition. If United Russia has 27%, you can't make it 54, but you can make it up to 40. Mm -hmm. And I think that... But that's not enough. They want a constitutional majority. No, I think that the idea by now is that they're not going to reach it. They're not going to reach 300 Duma seats out of 450. Uh, it may be the simple majority, uh, 270, I think it is, or uh, 270-something. Uh, so I suppose that this is going to be possible. Uh, possible and possible. Uh, however, I suppose that, um, that the effect of it, uh, in terms of discouraging people to accept procedures, mm -hmm. to accept legitimacy, will be significant. Uh, it won't, I don't think we're going to see anything comparable to the Bolotnia-Ploshit protests of 2011-2012. But there's going to be a creeping disillusionment. Mm -hmm. And I think that, on the one hand, this regime will remain stable for some time because it has money uh, to buy loyalty. But on the other hand, this disillusionment saps 
respect for it and its legitimacy. And who will eventually try to use this veining respect and legitimacy mm. is an interesting question. Mm. I want to I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the smart voting going into this election because this is something that this 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 idea that I mean there's some debate over whether Navalny pioneered it. The first time I heard of it was from Navalny. The first I saw it in its nascent form back in 2011 when Navalny. Remember the debate between Navalny and Boris Nemtsov at the time, where Nemtsov was encouraging boycotting the election and Navalny was saying no, go to the polls, but. Vote for anybody but United Russia. Vote for the communists. Vote for Zhirinovsky. Vote for anybody but the, com the United Russia to deny them a majority and to embarrass the Kremlin. That was basically Navalny's strategy. It worked. Um, and then that, that has kind of evolved into this much more sophisticated notion of smart voting that Navalny has, was, 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 uh, was talking about before he w w was in prison. And now his team is kind of carrying on this notion. And they, they, they tried they used it in kind of local and regional elections where you determine which candidate has the best chance of defeating the United Russia candidate. It might be a communist. It might be somebody from El de Pair. It, it, it might be an independent candidate. But you get all of Navalny's supporters to vote for that. Candidate, they kind of adopt the candidate. They have an app that is on the, you know, the 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 the, the Apple and the Google uh, App Store right now that is kind of recommends in, in each individual district who to vote for. And the Kremlin's trying to shut this down. They're trying to shut this down. Um, they just arrested a journalist in Rostov Nadanu for posting on Facebook about this. They're pressuring Apple and Google to remove the Navalny app from their app stores. How do you do you do you think smart voting has a chance in this election? I, I had Vladimir Milov, our, our common friend on the show, um, also from Vilnius last week, and he he thinks he seems to think it does. Um, how do you see this? Is there a chance to embarrass the Kremlin with smart voting? Brian uh, will have a nuanced answer to your question. Um, it depends on how you look at politics. Mm. Um, if you look at politics as essentially a managerial exercise, then maybe smart voting is a good idea. Mm. However, there is a time and place for different types of political activity. And uh, let us say there's an argument for that can be made for smart voting. But frankly, if you look at 2011, yes, it did work, for example, giving a bit more votes to United, uh, sorry, to just Russia and uh, to the communists, a bit. Mm -hmm. However, this did not have, it didn't have any effect on political life in Russia, on the activities of the Duma. The Duma remained the presidential administration's uh, tool and it's not for nothing that that Duma, to which some deputies managed to get uh, with the help of this smart voting, this Duma was called Mad Printer mm. by, by the same opposition people that maybe voted in 2011 for anybody but United Russia, uh, because it was printing all sorts of repressive laws, especially mm. in the Crimea, uh, like crazy. Right. Now, Right, it was it, this Duma that created the foreign agent law. It was yes, this Duma that exactly, created the exactly, exactly. law. So, I think that the issue is here, whether you try and engage in practical politics, and in this respect, yes, maybe you can succeed in putting a few more communists and a few more Zhirinovskites. And spoiling the, the narrative, and spoiling the Kremlin's narrative of a victory yes, in the election. Yes, it does. On the other hand, the Kremlin, it, to some extent, it legitimizes the idea that this is some kind of election. Mm. And if you say that this is not an election, this is a circus, this is a plebiscite, then, then, then the idea of uh, the boycott uh, becomes more plausible. And again, the issue is who is your audience? Because the Kremlin, on top of wanting some kind of uh, narrative that favors United Russia and some kind of win for United Russia. The Kremlin is very much interested in something that in Russian is called by short word, Yavka, voter yeah. turnout. Voter turnout, yeah. And uh, if your audience is the Kremlin, then maybe the boycott also has some meaning because mm. then if you, first of all, it's easier to realize because if you Ask people to boycott elections, it's easy. It's just you do nothing. You don't have to choose anything. You just stay at home. Mm. 
Yes, of course. There's going to be falsification even then. But mm-hmm. on the Yafka as well. But yes, on the Yafka too. But then again, the authorities will know how many people didn't turn out. They will have to uh, invent narratives that will have to attract mm-hmm. people to come and vote mm-hmm. or to bribe them, I don't know, by giving money out, which happened in Russia, not, not, not once. Mm-hmm. I think, or to force people to go and vote, as they do in the army, uh, in state enterprises, right. to go and, uh, and uh, take a picture of your, of your uh, ballot paper with your smartphone in the booth. This irritates people, so I'd say that uh, the boycott, to me, seems also viable because then you address directly Putin's team and says, mm-hmm. you know what, we can, to such, we can disinterest people in the vote in your so-called elections in such a way that you'll have to make an effort to, to attract them. because. There is an argument to be made, which actually was made by the late, great Boris Nemtsov, that because the Communist Party, the Zhirinovsky Party, and the rest of the parties that have a chance of being in the Duma, because they are all essentially the same party as United Russia. Right. So uh, it's His Majesty's very loyal opposition. So you don't change anything. And uh, as I think Gary Kasparov once said, uh, elections are about who has political power. This is not what decide what is decided in these elections. So I think that there is an argument to be made for the smart voting. Mm-hmm. But also, if you look back at 2011, it didn't work that much. Uh, there is an argument to be made for the boycott. It depends, mm-hmm. again, on what is, what is your strategy. If your strategy is delegitimizing Putin, Delegitimize the system we built. Maybe the boycott is better. If it's inflicting pain on United Russia, uh, yes, then you do the smart yeah. vote. And it's, that was the strategy in 2011. That the you know, remember the party Zhulikovy Varov that Navalny was pressing, the party of thieves and, and swindlers. Um, but this ship seems to have sailed. Um, there's not going to be a boycott this year. There's going to be smart voting is yeah. what everybody in the opposition is talking about. I am curious to see how successful this tactic is going to be. The Kremlin's trying to do everything possible to shut it down. And um, by the way, by doing that, it's actually, to some extent, advertising smart yeah. voting. Yeah. Because that is what everyone is talking about now. Mm, yeah. So if the Kremlin wanted to prevent it, then maybe it should have, uh, it should have uh, said, well, we don't care. Right, right. If I, no, were, if I were the Kremlin, I would have said, well, look, we are so sure of us winning, of us winning, so do whatever you want. Mm. But they are doing a different thing, and I think that uh, the presidential administration knows what it's doing. Uh, these people are very experienced in, in, <laughs> in manipulating the elections. Mm. So, uh, interestingly enough, uh, what one sees is that they are, in a sense, by pursuing by trying to block uh, all these kind of apps and trying to uh, block smart voting, at the same time, they're essentially advertising it. Mm. And that may have uh, what you call in Russian the apparatus resultat? Yes, to some extent it can. But I, again, I think that uh, in the end, if, if I may, I don't, I'm not going to make a lot of predictions, uh, although we, we know that this is going to be the doom of fully controlled by Putin. I think there's one I can make. Uh, I think that this is the election which finally should convince the Russian opposition that as long as elections are held under this model in Putin's Russia, there is no chance of getting even one millimeter close to real political power uh, with such vote. I think that after this so-called election, after this voting, after this plebiscite, call it whatever you want, there has to be a rethink Mm. of the whole opposition strategy and of the whole, um, if you wish, of the whole idea of opposition. I think we're standing on the cusp of a very, very important change uh-huh. that is, that's been going on in Russia because of uh, 
Putin's desire to stay on as essentially president for life, mm -hmm. and because of the uh, complete dismantling of the Navalny network mm -hmm. in Russia. So I think that this is, after these elections, smart voting or not, there will, there needs to be, one needs to have a time for reflection mm -hmm. about what does being in opposition mean mm -hmm. in today's Russia. That's that's an interesting point. So in this sense, I always think of these elections are these so-called elections as potential watersheds for the regime. Um, but you are saying that this election could turn out to be a potential watershed for the election. And that actually segues nicely into the last thing I wanted to talk about before we shifted and talked about 2024. You had a really good piece in, in, in the Russian magazine Snub this week um, where you were where you were, if I understood it properly, you were arguing that the. The ground, the ground is kind of fertile for the kind of reemergence of a new Russian left um, right now. And you point to a poll from the Levada Center, which is about the only uh, respectable pollster left in Russia at the moment. Also, also a foreign agent, by the way. Also a foreign agent. But uh, this poll in the in Levada says that the a majority of Russians favor social welfare and, uh, and rising standards of living over this great power status and empire, which is a bit of a reversal, actually. And you you seem to interpret this as fertile ground for kind of a – the opposition will be more left in orientation going forward. And you talk about the uh, the, the, the Nikolai uh, Bondarenko phenomenon um, – this this uh, this communist, uh, he's, I believe he's the speaker of the Saratov uh, Duma, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this young kind of more telegenic uh, communist, and he you, you seem to see him as the uh, as the kind of avatar of the you know and wave of the future. How do am I correct in interpreting what you're saying there? And is that is that does that relate to what you were just saying about this election potentially being a turning point for the opposition? Yes, among other things. I think it's it's a turning point for the opposition because the opposition, whichever opposition, liberal, democratic, monarchist, communist, they will have to think about what does it mean conceptually to be in opposition? Uh, what kind of narrative you are going to put in place to counter Putin's narrative? What kind of big ideas you are going to present to the public? And then what kind of tactics, what kind of operative tools you're going to use in practice to achieve it. And I suppose that this is before I go into the leftists in Russia, I think that's a very important, um, a very important thing, because uh, Putin is a very experienced and uh, still strong politician, not as strong as he is today, older more distracted, more interested in his legacy than in practicalities, but still fairly important, fairly strong, because he possesses uh, levers of political power, levers of repression, and financial clout. But he also possesses a certain idea of Russia. As de Gaulle once said, that he always had une certaine idée de France, uh, a certain idea of France. So Putin has a certain idea of Russia. And I think that this concept of Russia as a great power where sovereignty is all, where greatness is achieved by the obedience in critical moments of the citizenry to whoever sits at the top, to the top authority, no matter whether it's the emperor, the general secretary, or, or the president, um, definitely is something that chimes in with at least significant part of Russians. I'm not saying it's the majority, but a significant part of of uh, of people who are Putin's base for today. And I think that without combining uh, this kind of managerial element of politics with some kind of grand narrative and building an image of an opposition, I'm not saying opposition leaders, but of an opposition, as a force to be reckoned with, but also as a force that knows what to do with Russia, it's very important. Mm -hmm. And going, and for now, we'll see, because the democratic opposition in Russia is disheartened and dismantled. Mm -hmm. It's going to reappear eventually, but it will take uh, them to some kind of regrouping. And, but, and the people we regularly think of as the opposition in Russia are not left. They are mm -hmm. 
they are, they liberal, are they're either they are either liberal or they are nationalist, right? Um, or exactly. some or some fusion of the two, as is the case yes, in the following. Yes, 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 exactly. I think yes, moderate nationalists with uh, definitely some significant democratic uh, outlook. Uh, now, we, if we're talking about the left, I mean, this Levada Center poll, which you mentioned, is important also because uh, it has another mm, metrics there, another, another element, another question that people are asked. And 49% of Russians, including one third of people aged 18 to 24, mm. prefers a Soviet system of governance. 18 to uh, 24. So 18, people that never experienced the Soviet system. Yes, of 18 to 24 is one, a third of them, about, I think, 30 to 31% want the Soviet system. They are also uh, the biggest sort of uh, fans of democracy, about 25%. Uh, the rest in, in other age groups, uh, the, uh, this kind of preference for the Soviet model is, is even stronger. So it makes 49% nationwide. Mm. What it means, of course, it doesn't mean that people want gulag. Right. But what they want, they want essentially the state to control the economy, to distribute treasure, mm. and to lift responsibility from their shoulders. And uh, this is, of course, partly a reaction to enormous wealth disparities in Russia, uh, to the oligarchs, to, to corruption. Yes, but people do not want to do anything about it themselves. They want some kind of ideal... Soviet Union without the gulag and with a lot of sausage in the shops to do it for them. Uh -huh. And in such circumstances, people like Mr. Bondarenko is very young, he's 35. Right. Uh, people like him uh, have a certain chance because the number of people that want Western-style democracy has been unchanged for 10, if not 15 years. It's give or take anything between 12 and 16, 18, max 20%. But it's higher among younger it's higher among younger people, but the younger people are those who also have the least inclination to go and vote. Mm. And the highest or the, the highest percentage of those who are inclined to emigrate. Mm. So in a sense, uh, people who vote are much older. And they want this kind of Soviet system, even those who, are, who only remember it very vaguely or don't even remember it at all. This creates an opening for left-wing demagoguery, uh, which will we'll also press some kind of very real button. They want multi-billionaires to be essentially stripped of their wealth. Uh, they want, I don't know, state banks. They want uh, a lot of things. And by the way, this, for example, Mr. Bondarenko is saying, oh, you know, we will have complete debt forgiveness on the day we win power. This is going to be zeroing of all the loans, bank loans, and all the mortgages. Because they are grabitsky. It's, it's a oh, rubber band. You know, so essentially you will have this very, very high level kind of Allende Chavez Morales type of rhetoric, uh -huh. which, by the way, has supporters among a growing part of Russian intelligentsia, which is uh, like 30, 35 year olds that read Marcuse, that uh, uh, read Slavoj Žižek, read all these kind of left wing philosophers of the West. Uh, uh, that uh, take their cue from uh, radical left-wing movements uh, in the West. Um, it's not your old Swedish-style social democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, it's completely different. It's really, to a very large extent, this uh, very much quasi-revolutionary movement uh, with the, a bit of, uh, you know, champagne socialism to spice it up. Right. So uh, I suppose that not now, but let us say in the period after Putin or during late Putin or during possibly weak Putin, this is going to be a strong narrative. Mm. And these people are going to be very visible. And these people may be much stronger than whoever will emerge will emerge as uh, uh, as uh, a kind of dem leader of Russian's Democrats. And I think there's another thing which we need to remember. For 20 plus years, or at least for, for the last seven, eight, definitely after the Crimea. Well, I would even say after Putin's return to the Kremlin, 
the state, the narrative of state propaganda, the narrative emanating from the Kremlin, was uh, basically very cynical. Uh, everyone steals. Politics is always about interest, naked interest. It's always in the end about power, which in the end is always about money. Uh, don't believe all these kind of things about democracy, human rights, uh, balance of uh, uh, power, separation of powers, so on and so forth. Uh, this is something that seeped very deep into the Russian psyche. Mm. So kind of, even if tomorrow Putin decides to take his helicopter all the way to a remote monastery and, you know, become a monk, <laughs> people that were poisoned for years and years and years by this propaganda and by their own powerlessness to change things under Putin will still be there. Now, take a guess. Who's going to inspire them? Some kind of new Russian Andrei Sakharov or Václav Havel or whoever who will say, we all citizens, we need to get together to, uh, to, to create this new democratic free Russia, blah, 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 blah. Or a demagogue who... who or the demagogue who will say, right. oh, by the way, Putin's gone now, so his friends, you'd better take the shortest road to the nearest executive airport, you know, private jet airport, and get out before we strip you naked and hang you on the Red Square. Now the national wealth is returning to people. Well, let me put it like that. I'm not sure what's going to be the outcome. Let I'm What I'm certain of, maybe the Russians will say, oh, hold on a sec. No, we don't want that because we don't know where it will end. We don't know whether they may start with the oligarchs, but it will maybe end up by someone taking away my flat, which was privatized. Right, Russians have seen this movie before. Yes, the Russians have seen this, by the way, yes, this, the old Elton John song, and I've seen, I've seen this movie too. But I think that at least the question remains open because when we see sociological trends, we see, we see this desire for rough justice growing. And to stem this demagoguery, you, for now, you do not have enough political forces. Of course, the Kremlin is going to try and stem it for some time, saying, oh, you go and vote for United Russia. You do, you vote for Putin, the Putin's successor, because, uh, you know, if you don't do that, these horrible people will take away your flats, will take away your dachas, will take away your, everything, your businesses. But, you know, after so many years of lying, who will believe them? Mm. So I think that... In the end, there is a challenge. I'm not saying this is a given that Russia will become some kind of neo-communist hell. Uh, but what I'm saying that this trend is very visible and we have to pay attention mm. and it will be prominent in the years after Putin. What is also important, Brian, is that, uh, that, that most of these people, these leftists, they are very much in, the, in Putin's neo-imperialist boat. They want maybe some kind of change at home, but I don't think that their attitude to NATO or Ukraine or Belarus or Georgia will change. Uh -huh. This sounds like it would be a great topic for a future podcast that I'm going to kind of keep in mind. Um, I'm, it was a fascinating piece. Of keep, snob. Keep, me, keep me inscribed, you know. I will keep you inscribed. No, because your, your snob piece really got me thinking. Um, and so I, it was. It was a really a good piece. So I, we, I, haven't um, yet, we haven't yet started even talking about the emerging the emerging Russian woke culture. And that's yeah, different. yeah. No, I think there is a there is a good program to do on that in the future. But for now, we will shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look beyond next weekend's election and on to 2024, when Putin will seek to solidify his status as Russia's de facto president for life. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. 
Joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at powervertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Россия сегодня вступает Привет. в силу поправки Это Навальный, в я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. So this weekend's election is basically a dress rehearsal for the so-called 2024 presidential election, the first one following the constitutional changes that Putin forced through last year that effectively eliminated term limits for him. Putin is already the longest-serving Russian or Soviet leader since Joseph Stalin. He surpassed Leonid Brezhnev back in 2017. And if he serves two more terms in, uh, until 2036, he will indeed surpass Stalin as well. Kostya, how do you see the 2024 thing playing out? How do you see this weekend's so-called elections role in the process? And what do we expect going forward? Does Putin want to catch up to Catherine the Great? Huh. Well, probably he would want to. Issue is the issue is his age. Yeah. Um, I think that even well, as we speak, I don't do not think that Putin knows what he's going to do in 2024. I think that he's um, well for him it's too early to decide unless he really wants to step down tomorrow. Uh, I suppose that um, he would want to shepherd it uh, definitely in until 2024 because he needs to, to 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 solve a few problems i think he he would want some kind of um change in um in 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 um, his conflict with ukraine uh i think he would like to pressure ukraine into essentially accepting his terms essentially becoming not, a not, not, gonna, happen. not uh, gonna happen i i think that it won't but i think that he will try he needs to decide what to do next with Belarus and That's with more Alexander clear. Lukashenko. Yeah. It's more clear. Now, also, I think he wants to stay in, stay, stay in control because uh, for now has very, very favorable conditions in, in dealing with uh, the current American administration, which seems to be either disinterested in Russia or outright being ready to make concessions. And I, would say, I would say the former. Uh, not not really the latter. I think the administration wants to park the Russia problem and deal with China, which I think is a mistake. And I'm on the record as saying that. Um, but but uh, but no, I think I don't think they're ready to make concessions. I think they want to. Kind of... uh, I think that when you park the Russia problem, it's already a concession because mm. then Putin can do things. Uh, because in the end, if you park the car, then you have to go back to the parking and, you know, and, and, and put on the key into the ignition or press the ignition button. Uh, and, and okay, even if you have an electric... No, I, I hear you. If you have a Tesla, it will speed very... <laughs> but you still have to go back to the parking lot. So while you're going to the parking lot, Putin can try and do things. Also, I think he hopes to be called to cooperate on Afghanistan. Mm. And I think that this is big. Uh, a big uh, hope. But anyway, what I mean is that he will stay until 2024, uh, and then he'll see. Um, I don't where's think he, he Where's he going to go? What are his options after 2024? Well, first of all, his option is to stay. Of course, that's the only option. Uh, again, he may decide to go and create some kind of position for him, but I always thought... Well, I consider that staying. If he if he goes quote unquote goes from the presidency and creates some kind of supreme leader, but I think that ship has also sailed when they you know when they made the constitutional well, amendments. So. Uh, I think I think essentially he uh, he either has to basically say I'm going to leave power completely. I'm going to resign. I'm going to go and pension myself off. I'm not I'm not going to bet my 401k that that's going to happen not, for sure. No, exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I think that he's going to stay. Yes. But I think that then a lot of factors come into play because of age, because of the composition of the group around him, because these people are also getting old with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think he would like to have maybe some kind of uh, weeding out of the ruling class. Mm -hmm. uh, because 
what I suspect, and if I suspect it, then probably Putin suspects it too, then maybe by now, a lot of 40, 45-year-old vice ministers, vice governors, uh, people in the middle level of the of Russian bureaucracy, high to middle, mm-hmm. that feel that if this old man and his cronies are going to stay for another 10, 15 years, we're not going to go, we're not going to get on to the top. We're not going to smell and feel and taste all the advantages of being at the very top of the Russian power pyramid. And I think that these are the people that may basically sabotage Putin's plans. And I think that he understands this, so I think he'll weed out uh, this kind of top. So there'll be a purge. Yeah, there's going to be some kind of maybe gentle purge, but still purge. He's going to test people. And I suppose that he would want to come to 2024 with some kind of model that will ensure his effective rule uh, after that. And there is a problem there because Putin's instinct is to to leave everything as it is. Mm -hmm. That's what happens to you with age. Yeah, we saw that with the constitutional changes because I was expecting him to create some kind of national leader position for himself yeah. um, above the above the political system. He was going to kind of become the Russian version of the Ayatollah um, or Deng Xiaoping in China after he formally left power. And he didn't do it. And I thought that was really revealing that he's very no, he's becoming he, I, cautious and conservative with age. Look, I, I would say that being being an Ayatollah is a kind of better comparison to me because Ayatollahs do have certain powers. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the great leader in Iran. Deng Xiaoping was really wielding his power from behind the scenes because of his personal authority. Mm-hmm. Now, this China is different from, from yes. Russia, different political culture. There so is, is Iran. No, so, uh, yes, Iran is different because Iran is a religious country yeah. with religious authority. I mean, probably it's less religious than the Ayatollahs presented to us, but it's still fairly religious. Um, China is Confucian. There's this thousand years of, of respect for authority, respect for wisdom, all this kind of mumbo-jumbo that Russians don't understand. I think that in Russia, it's it's the nameplate on your door that counts. Mm-hmm. If it says commander-in-chief president of the Russian Federation, then you have the power. If it says former president who is very clever, then no one cares. <laughs> because there are, you know, there are lots of uh, legends in their lifetime in Russia who think that they can run Russia better than Putin. And the only thing that prevents them is actually Putin and his team and his uh, KGB guys and, and his, uh, you know. So he, ha- so he has to create a mechanism. That- dossiers on their files on the- all these corrupt people. So I think that uh, Putin will have to stay in the end. The- I-, I believe it. But It's just how he stays, yeah. Yeah, it's an issue of how he stays. It's an issue of what kind of team he would like to surround himself with. Uh, because he'll probably want some kind of renewal. Uh, it also is a case of um, essentially making this process smooth and legitimate in the eyes of the public. And this will be quite different because by that time, in 2024, uh, Putin will be in power, well, still less than Stalin, but but a quarter of a century. Yeah. That's a lot. Let That's us... A lot. Francisco Franco was uh, was uh, uh, heading Spain for 36 years after the end of the civil war. But for that matter, he was a winner in a very bloody civil war. That counts for a lot. Right. He also created the transition model in 1948 or 46, when he imported Prince Juan Carlos to be trained as his successor. So everyone knew there's going to be a monarchy in Spain after Franco. That was a very smart succession, I have to say. I don't put, think that Putin has anything even approaching. This He's not going to restore the monarchy? Mm, well, I mean, <laughs> he probably would like to, to be crowned, I'm sure. Uh, but I think that's probably a bit over the top. Although, you know, Brian, frankly speaking, I would give it 1-2%. Why not? Mm. No, I mean... The- well, you're touching on someplace I wanted to go because there's two things I wanted to discuss in this. Because I'm this smart, summit. you know. The, the mechanism of staying, which we, we just – you are very smart. The, the mechanism of staying, which we just discussed, but also does he try to create a, a transition plan and a succession plan? I mean this is a very sensitive issue. Putin doesn't like 
even talk about this, but he is getting old. And if he does serve two more terms as president, if we assume that's going to be the mechanism he uses, well, that, 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 that puts him in power until 2036, and he's going to be in his 80s. Um, he's going to be very old. He's going to be older than Brezhnev was when Brezhnev died. So, I mean, this is this is a, a tricky thing. Does he kind of create some kind of succession mechanism, which gets into the question of does Putinism survive Putin? Um, like uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, the Soviet Union effectively lived with the system that Stalin built, minus the terror, up well, until up until it, Gorbachev, basically. It depends on uh, what is Putinism. I mean, if we define what Putinism is, then we'll be closer to the answer. I mean, this sort of man, can you institutionalize and bureaucratize the system that is right now kind of based on Putin the man effectively? I mean, can you bureaucratize and make permanent this system of so-called sovereign democracy that that, that Surkov you know, once once called it, this system with fake elections and a fake mm -hmm. parliament, which is, is in fact oligarchic rule um, with an autocratic leader at its head. Can, can you institutionalize that the way Stalin's successors institutionalized the very personalized system that, that existed uh, with Stalin at its head? That's that's kind of the one of the bigger kind of questions uh, I have going forward. Look, uh, or does something entirely new come in after Putin? Once Putin goes, everything gets blown up and something new comes in. My, my, my feeling is that the bureaucracy would like to stay in power, of course. But I think that in some ways Putin is unique because he managed to create this kind of image, which is um, very remote and very understandable to the Russians at the same time. In a sense, that that's his that's his exclusive mm. political invention, and I suppose that no one can replace him. Whoever comes after Putin will be very different from from, from Putin, for better or for worse. It may be a pure military dictator. I don't believe that it can last, but it, it can be. It can be someone that will open a a kind of a type of Khrushchev sprang. Right. Uh, well, this regime may fall under the blows of the kind of, you know, let's say, the same populist left that we describe. But I don't think that it can be someone who will imitate Putin and continue Putinism as a system. I think it, it will have to be something different. However, what you can say is that people that will come after him will probably try to, uh, well, war, probably they will want to some, have some kind of detente with the West. But I think that this obsession with the post-Soviet space, with Ukraine... That's not going away. I think that's not going to, get, to go away soon. For that, you need Ever. someone who will inspire the Russian people with a completely different vision of Russia. Mm. Uh, it may happen, but for now, we do not see this happening basically like very soon. I think that what, uh, what is important is that you asked about transition. I do not think that Putin is going to have some kind of long-term strategic transition plan, which everyone will understand and say, okay, we're, we're on board. Because Putin is afraid that the moment he chooses a transition model, power will start sipping, going back and slipping through his, through his Like feet. it did, well, like it did to a degree with Medvedev, yeah. Exactly. And he doesn't want that. So by definition, his transition plans will have to, will have to be very swift very sudden, very kind of out-of-the-blue type of plans, which will have to be implemented with a lightning speed while no one is ready. And I suppose that's difficult because the system he created, in the system he created, people want predictability. And to survive until the very end in one piece, Putin has to be unpredictable. So in this respect, that creates tension inside the system, mm -hmm. yeah. even without any input from the opposition, be it left, right, or center. Right. It comes from within. I mean, this is something I've been thinking about, because if you look at this system, it is the most centralized system that Russia has had, or the Soviet Union has had, since Stalin. And this is not to say Putin is Stalin, but it is no. to say that the systems where they, they were kind of like, you know, this constellation around a single star – um, is, 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 uh, those are the only two examples I see. Um, if you look at the kind of post-Stalin Soviet Union, it was always a collective leadership with a front man. 
Brezhnev was not an absolute dictator, as, as you know. He was, a, he was the front no, man for a collective. And Yeltsin was the front man for a collective, right? Um, so, I mean, you, 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 you haven't seen this kind of centralization since Stalin. And if Putin unexpectedly is, you know, is incapacitated or dies, you're going to have chaos because you don't really have any – I mean, you have a, you know, an institutional process in the Constitution with the prime minister becomes president and there's elections in three months. But I'm not going to bet my mortgage on that that's going to happen, right? I don't think anybody should. Um, so there, if he doesn't put a succession plan in, there's going to be chaos when he goes. Now, maybe he doesn't care. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not – anyway, we're, we're kind of getting inside of Putin's head, which is a, a dark and creepy place. So I'm not sure we can, we can see anything there. But what, what, any thoughts on that? Well, I agree. I think that uh, if Putin suddenly kind of leaves this earth, then there's going to be chaos. Yes, in theory, it's the prime minister, Mr. Mishustin, who takes over. That ain't um, happening. I mean, there the, the, the may be a situation in which, especially if, if Putin's death creates some kind of an unrest in the country, that may play into the hands of whoever is the acting president, the prime minister of the time, should be. Because in the end, if the ruling class, to use a Marxist uh, designation, uh, decides that it's in its ruling class's interest to, well, basically preserve itself, they may close ranks behind whoever is the prime minister in order to avoid this kind of fratricidal um, you know, uh, bloodletting uh, among the elites. But on the other hand, lots of people will be saying, well, Medvedev will be saying, by the way, I am the best candidate because I was president already. Because do, you want unfreezing relations with the West because Putin is no longer there. So I'm the best one to talk to all this kind of, you know, Bidens and, and uh, whoever will be the German chancellor or French president. Uh, I think that it's going to be also a temptation to say, okay, at least Medvedev is the devil we know. But I think that in the end, there is... He also has this very... Khrushchev quality that nobody's going to be afraid of Medvedev, right? Yes, Everybody's but on the, other hand, on the other hand, Medvedev will really, really avenge his humiliations. And I think that uh, a lot of people in the security services won't want Medvedev to be there. Uh, so I suppose, there's, as you rightly said, there's a very, very high chance of internecine struggle mm -hmm. inside the Kremlin of, uh, you know, palace coups and counter coups and kind of this kind of there's going to be a doggy dog atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That is very probable. And I think that Putin has no one to blame for it but himself because he can't implement a transition plan without endangering himself, or he thinks that he can't do it without endangering yeah. himself, without losing part of his appeal and part of his power. And I suppose that, uh, that, that this is his problem. We don't know. Maybe he will say, in the end, I know that Medvedev didn't let me down. Maybe it's going to be Medvedev. Mm. Uh, he's going to point him success, so that's going to be funny. Uh, but I think <laughs> that, uh, in the end... I think for now, Putin doesn't have a real plan. That is the only thing I can bet my $10 on. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. We're bumping up against the end. I mean, yeah, but the things I'm looking for going forward are what is the mechanism he's going to use to stay in 2024? And I think we have a pretty good idea of that. Is he going to create a, 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 a succession plan? Um, I mean, I've always said the best uh, model for understanding what happens when Putin goes is that, that, that hilarious movie, The Death of Stalin. Um, which effectively, uh, you know, yes. shows us what happened when 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 a centralized system collapses. And on that note, I guess we can wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you: you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city. Vilnius is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Thanks for staying up late with us tonight, Kostya, and thanks for an enlightening discussion. Thank you very much, Brian. See you all again. 
Yeah, see you soon. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that was prepared by our production team.